Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I was sure I was going to make it through 10 and 11 on Wednesday night (laughs) until I got halfway through the study and then I realized I wasn't. But I'm happy to say I'm glad I didn't um, because of um, what the Lord has put in my heart on these verses this morning. The name of the study is simply called Remember, and that will make more sense to you as we make our way through the scriptures this morning. Uh, A little bit of background, remember, on Corinth. If you look at the last verse of uh, chapter 11 and the last line, he says, and the rest I will set in order when I come, implying that there is a lot of disorder. Now you gotta put yourself kind of in their shoes, um, the city of Corinth. Remember it had 700,000 people two-thirds of which were slaves. Um, They were completely pagan. Um, The temple to Aphrodite was elevated high and lifted up. Uh, They had 1,000 temple prostitutes, and um, they had this weekly routine where they went down and they um, um, were simply, as Paul put it here, out of order. The first 16 verses, uh, we take it one way because we have some understanding of order in our society, at least up until this year. (laughs) And um, that's deteriorating quickly. But if Paul is writing to the Corinthians, they have no idea of accountability or oversight, these things are foreign to them. So what we read in the first 16 verses, and I'm just gonna read them, but I want you to think of them from uh, a Corinthian perspective when they have no concept of order. And so now, for the first time, um, Paul is gonna explain to them that there is an order with the father and the son, a husband and a wife, and so on and so forth. So let's pick it up in verse one. And to give them example, he says, I want you to imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. What traditions? Well, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, all right? All of a sudden, we're put in a role where a man, probably in Corinth, all he thought about was the weekend and the idea of being under authority or having anybody instruct them is really a a new concept to them. So he says, I want you to know, men, that you have somebody who's over you, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the head of woman is man, and that was a foreign concept, I'm sure, also to them. And the head of Christ is God. So we have an order that is established. Now, before I go any farther, unless I be misunderstood, we are told um, when it comes to the gospel, there's neither Jew or Gentile, 
slave or free, male or female. We're all one in the Lord. And so I would throw that in there lest um, it be taken out of context and realizing that we're all one in the Lord. But this is all new to them. He goes on to say, verse four, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Uh, For that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shown. But it is shameful for a woman to be shown or shaved. Uh, Let her be covered. And with the idea there that she is showing respect for the authority that's over her. And a man indeed ought to not cover his head, says he is in the image of the glory of God, but woman in the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Now this would have been completely new to them. If you were Hebrew, you would understand that Adam was made from the dust of the earth. The Lord breathed into his nostril and he became a living being. Put him into a deep sleep, And then he opened up Adam and he took out one of Adam's ribs and he made woman from the rib. And that's the idea. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. That's literally. Uh, That would have been a new concept for them. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Imagine being a Corinthian and hearing all this for the first time. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I'm not quite sure what that means, to be honest with you. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of the woman or nor woman independent of the man in the Lord. For as the woman was from the man, even so the man also was through the woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? And um, I told the story, I think, when we went through this earlier. Um, when I first got saved, my hair was down here somewhere. And I was going to uh, Assembly of God Church in, in Oshkosh and... Um, uh, some guy in a three-piece suit, all decked out, came up to me, and he says, don't you know that the Bible says that it's a shame for a man who'll have long hair? And looked at me, and I said, yeah, but did you read the next verse, the next two verses? And he had the deer in the headlights look like he didn't know what I was talking about. It says, but if a woman has long hair, there's a glory for her, for her hair is given to her for the covering. And so here's the order, but then we have this word but in verse 16. But if anybody seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. And that's what I pointed out to him. Um, You seem to be contentious with me about the length of my hair. And um, it says here that if there's a, seems to be a contention and the guy wants to have long hair, um, no big deal, nor do the churches of God. 
So, um, you know, the long hair days are pretty much over, but there's still some holdouts of long hair and beard. Take Lee, for instance. His, his beard comes all the way down here. <laughs> and so we have no such customs. There are neither male or female, Jew or Gentile, male or female. We're just all one in the Lord. And uh, don't make trivial issues big issues is the idea. Now remember, they've heard no such thing as structure in society and order. So they're hearing it for the, for the first time. Now, uh, this morning, as we look at these verses that Paul read for us earlier, uh, there can be this tendency to not see the depth of them because we read them every Sunday of the first month when we take communion. Paul's up here. Um, He explains that if you're born again, have a relationship with the Lord, we practice what we call open communion. That means if you're born again, you're welcome to participate with us. And um, we're very familiar with this verse. We read it, these verses here. Um, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I'm gonna be highlighting the words remembrance throughout our study this morning. Same thing with the cup of the covenant. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now because we read it so often, Remembrance of what would be the, the question. Um, in Matthew 6, verse 7, you don't have to turn there. The Lord is talking about prayer and how the Pharisees would pray. And he says, they pray a vain repetitious, repetitious, repetitious <laughs> prayer. And um, because it's done over and over and over again, he says, don't pray that way. Pray from your heart. Let me give you an example. Um, Before uh, I came to know the Lord, and we were sitting down, and we're going to pray before supper. Every good Lutheran did. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food to us be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. How many Lutherans here? (laughs) How about when you went to bed at night? Mom would tuck us in. And uh, she would pray with us. (laughs) You guys are saying it before I'm saying it. (laughs) Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I can rattle it right off, and I haven't rattled that off in many years. That is a vain, repetitious prayer. And it meant nothing to us. Mom kissed us goodnight and went to bed. That was just the way it was. So I don't want to make a complete association between uh, Matthew 6 and the vain repetition and what we're reading here. My point is that we can read something so many times when the Lord says, do this in remembrance of me, we're not really grasping. Remember, remember what? And so the study this morning that I would like to do is an in-depth study of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from the time he was arrested until the time he was crucified. 
I'm going to warn you ahead of time. God bless you. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. The Bible study is graphic. It's meant to be, and I want it to be. In men's prayer yesterday, we're, we're in Isaiah, and um, I bet you half the guys there, um, we were in Isaiah uh, 30, verse 10. And as we go around the room, everybody picks out what scripture meant something to them. I bet you a good quarter of them picked verse 10. Now the verses that we were in have to do with the judgments of the nations from Egypt to Babylon to Assyria to Jerusalem. All these are judgment chapters. Now Isaiah would have been the prophet. So he's going around telling them the judgment that's going to fall upon them. Well, the verse that kept coming up is that the people were tired of hearing about judgment. So um, I'm going to quote Isaiah 30.10, which tells us, who says to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Don't tell us what's really right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Go ahead and lie to us just so it isn't heavy and uh, hard. Make it smooth. Make it easy. Because we don't like all this judgment stuff that you're talking about. And it stuck out to a lot of the guys. Speak to us smooth things and prophesy deceit. Lie if you have to as long as it makes us feel good is the idea. But that wasn't the truth. Jeremiah's ministry for 70 years was one of judgment. He says, don't try to fight it. I'm going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He's going to come down. He's going to take Jerusalem captive. And you guys are going to be in captivity for 70 years. That was his ministry. Repetitive. And it came to pass exactly as he said. Uh, There's a reason that they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet because that's really the message that the Lord had given to them. So this morning is not going to be smooth things. It's going to be graphic and just the opposite, but it's going to be the truth. So with that being said, let's go to the book of Matthew uh, 26. We're going to look at both the psychological Pressure on the Lord, emotional betrayal against him, which would be psychological and affect him mentally. And then we'll talk about the suffering physically that the Lord uh, went through. So if you're in Matthew 26, let me draw your attention to verse uh, 59 where we find one of the first things that are coming against him are these false accusations. Verse 59, now the chief priest and the elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, uh, they found none, but at last, two false witnesses came forward and they said, this fellow here, Jesus, he said, 
I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it again in three days. And uh, they said, we heard him say it, and uh, they were accusing him of going to destroy the temple. When you actually read it in the gospel, of course, he's referring to his body being the temple, and he would raise it again the third day. But they couldn't, they couldn't find anything on him, no matter what they tried. And yet he was falsely accused. To make it more personal, let me just ask the question. Don't raise your hand or not or whatever. Have you ever been falsely accused of doing something? And then how did you feel about it? When you know, I didn't do that. And yet it's going around. This person did this or that or the other thing. And um, it hits the rumor mill. And uh, you're being falsely accused of something you did not do. How do you feel? Well, Pilate examined him three times. Or was it four? And then he would come out and say, I find no fault with this man. Nothing. Zip. Nada. There's... This man is innocent of the charges that you are bringing against him. So one of the first things that he had to deal with psychologically, emotionally, was these false accusations that weren't true. I'll tell you what was true about what he could be accused of. He said, Jesus went around doing good. That's what it says about Jesus. He just went around doing good. Wherever he went, he did good things, whether they're feeding the 5,000 or uh, healing a blind man or having a lame man being able to walk. The Lord just went around doing good. Another part that is difficult psychologically to deal with, we also find in Matthew 26. I'll draw your attention to verse 26. And what we have here is the, the Lord's Supper, and it's being instituted, but it ties into being betrayed. So let's read, picking it up in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So we call this the Last Supper. And then it said after they had Um, had the meal, I like this, when they had sung a hymn. Now, a good portion of the Psalms are songs written by David that are hymns. And um, I like the idea uh, that they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so um, it was, uh, how did we read it in a psalm? Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with what? With singing. And, um, you know, we are 
able to sing from our heart gladness and joy um, because of what the Lord has done for us and we remember it. And then when we're done, we start our services here at Calvary with what? An opening song. How do we close it here at Calvary? With a closing song. We like to sing, what can I say? Um, just on a side note here. Um, Tim and Mary Danielson and, and Tom and Holly Goober are such a blessing to our fellowship and they would be embarrassed. I hope, if you're watching, I hope you're really embarrassed right now. But um, um, they're just catching the colors up, up north. Um, um, Tom and Holly went to the Badlands. I said, Holly, do you know they're getting snowstorms out there? <laughs> We're going anyway. <laughs> and the colors are past peak. Um, the Danielsons are up north. But uh, we're so grateful and appreciative uh, because talk about people that really do go the extra mile. They go the extra mile a lot more than you can ever really, really know. So um, the Lord had his followers. They went out and they sang. And then he said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. But after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter, being Peter, answered and said to them, even if all were made to stumble because of you, I will never be able to, I will never stumble. Remember, you gave me the name Peter, Rocky. I ain't letting you down, Lord. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter couldn't comprehend it. Uh, He was a man's man, and in his own thinking, in his own mind, there's no way that that's going to happen. Over my dead body is probably what he's thinking. But Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the other guys chimed in because of Peter going, yeah, us too. We'll never let you down, Lord. Now jump over to verse 69 through 75. Uh, Jesus has been arrested. They all took off in different directions. Verse 69, now Peter sat outside in the courtyard And a servant girl came up to him saying, you were also with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them saying, I don't know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gate, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this this fellow here, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a while, those who stood by came to him and said to Peter, surely you are one of them because your speech betrays you. Now the Galileans have an accent. Um, Galilee is north of Jerusalem. The UP is north of Appleton. (laughs) How do Uppers talk? They talk like Uppers. (laughs) 
And so my point is, the people called them out. And they say, you're not from around here. And that's definitely a Galilean slant. Talk to it. That we can detect. Truly, you're from Galilee. And then he began to curse. Well, Peter, I thought you were going to lay down your life. Can you imagine Peter cursing at this point? And swear, saying, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Wow. In the Gospels, it tells us at this point that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. So they were actually in eye contact. And the question is, what kind of look did the Lord give, give to Peter? Was it, I told you you'd betray me, Peter. And um, that wasn't the look. The look is one that, as we read through the Gospel of John, I point this out often, that um, without exception, every person he talks to, he tells that person something about themselves that nobody else knows. And what Peter thought he knew, Jesus already knew it was going to happen. I believe it was a look of compassion. Peter, I understand that men have feet of clay and that you may think you're strong, but you're really not. And I believe that was the look that he gave to him. But we read in verse 73, and Peter remembered the words of Jesus when he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then he went out and wept bitterly. I could really get sidetracked here. I'll get sidetracked just a little bit. I believe Peter gave up at this point. He said, how could I do what I just did? I can't be a disciple. I can't say I'm one of his after doing what I've just done. Now the reason I say that, he said that he would appear to his disciples after he's resurrected. He told them before Peter denied him. When the Lord was on his way with the two guys, Cleopas and his friends, on the road to Damascus on Sunday afternoon, Jesus appeared to them and um, has supper with the guys. And uh, then he's going home and he runs in and tells the disciples, the Lord is risen and he's appeared to Peter. Now the point is Peter's not with the guys. Is everybody with me? But there was a one-on-one conversation between Jesus and Peter that is not recorded for us in the scriptures. And it was some sort of restoration that took place. But I believe at this point, Peter says, can't do it. I don't deserve it. Not worthy of it. And so I'm just gonna, don't know what I'm gonna do. So what does the Lord do? (laughs) The Lord seeks him out. And um, he says, Peter, I knew you were gonna do all this stuff. Um, get over it already. Come on, let's go. And um, he ended up dying for Jesus just like he said he would. All the disciples did, except for John and Judas who betrayed him. But every one of the disciples died martyrs, died as martyrs and because of the Lord. And so we have here betrayal by one of his own. It also makes me think of King David 
and a hepathil. Um, is everybody familiar who a hepathil is? He was one of David's best friends. He was a counselor. David said of a hepathil, he's so smart that it's like hearing from the word of God himself. And they were tight, and they were close. But when Absalom decided he wanted David's kingdom, um, Absalom comes back into town, and David runs for the hills. And then one of his men comes up to him and says, oh, by the way, Ahipothel is with him. And the reason I bring it up is here we have not just somebody, David actually writes about it in the Psalms, about being betrayed. He said, if it was an enemy, I could have handled it. If an enemy would have betrayed me, I could have handled that, no big deal. But it wasn't, it was a Ahipothel. He was the one that I broke bread with. He was the one that I went to the sanctuary with. He was my best friend and his best friend betrayed him. All right, let's make it personal. Have you ever been betrayed? How did it feel? Maybe some of those memories are still there. So here, the Lord is betrayed by Simon, Simon Peter. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27 and just look at one verse, verse 26. Matthew 27, verse 26. 6 tells us, then they released Barabbas to them. This would be after um, Pilate had challenged him. And when they had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So now we're going from the, the psychological torment that the Lord went through, betrayal and so forth, to a physical scourging by the Romans. Um, they actually used to have a place when we'd go to Israel that was dedicated to what we're talking about this morning and going into great detail of what Jesus went through. Um, I know they shut one place down because it was too graphic for some of the tourists. They couldn't handle it. They had to leave. And then I heard they moved it to another place, and the last I heard, that one isn't there either. In other words, we don't want to hear this part of the story. It's too, too graphic for them. But a Roman scourging um, with their uh, whips would have been made out of leather. Um, they would have used... Um, weighted pieces of bone or metal attached to the leather cat of nine tails. And they would scourge the front and the back of him. And so that he would have been, if we go to um, um, that, that itself, many prisoners did not survive, a Roman scourging, because it just ripped your back wide open with the pieces of bone or the metal that, that was in it. Uh, he wasn't able to carry his cross uh, because, just because of the beating. But if we move on to uh, 28, um, 
After they had scourged him, the soldiers and governors took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and they put on a scarlet robe on him. Now we're going into being mocked. Anybody here ever been mocked before? How does it feel being mocked? Well, they mock him by putting on a scarlet robe because he says he's the king of the Jews. Well, if you're a king, then you should have a royal robe. But this is all in mockery. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews, here's your robe, here's your scepter, here's your crown. They had no idea what they were doing when they put that crown of thorns on Jesus' head. It's a picture. Remember we're talking New Testament teaching, Old Testament picture? You know that there were no thorns before Adam and Eve fell? You could uh, buy your wife roses, no thorns. And as soon as they sinned, God cursed the ground and it said it brought forth thorns. So where do thorns come from? Sin. And what we have here is a picture. They were mocking him, but they had no idea that they were fulfilling a picture. The crown of thorns represents sin. Where is it being placed? On the head of Jesus. And it's going to be judged. And um, so they really had no idea. They did it in mockery. And it's symbolic of the curse being placed literally on the head of uh, Jesus. It's a picture. All right, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Psalms 22. The Lord was not only forsaken by man and his disciples. When Peter denied him and they all forsook him and fled, he was left alone. Men forsook him, but the Father was with him. Jesus said in John eight twenty nine, and he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. That's John sixteen thirty two. if you're taking notes. He said, behold, the hour cometh, yea, and now comes, that you will be scattered, every man to his own, and you're going to leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone. Because the Father is with me, but the cross, but at the cross, the Father left him. And the loneliness of the Savior on the cross. Why was he lonely? Why was he forsaken of the Father? Well, that's what sin does. Sin isolates. Sin separates the man from God. Sin separates man from man. And sin separates a man from from himself. Psalm 22 is more graphic, in my opinion, of uh, what the Lord went through than we actually read in, in the gospel. The first verse here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This would have been one of the seven statements that Jesus had made. Jesus, nah, I There's no way I can put this in the words, my friends, Um, because you see, they have always been. We can grasp maybe living forever in 
to eternity. But it's hard for me to wrap my head around something always being. And not only always being, but always being one. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have always been, and they've never, ever been separated until this moment. And so there's a whole lot more in here that this preacher can't describe because it's the first time in all of eternity where the Father is separated from the Son and he had to be because of sin. And he's making, we'll read it a little bit later here, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. We'll read that in Isaiah 53. But he cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? And chapter 22 Verse seven and eight, we read um, more detail that happened at Calvary. And those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lips. They shake their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. That's a prophecy. Um, Jump down to verse 14. More detail. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. Um, I've told this story before. And um, um, it was because I was the only guy in the church with long hair that a traveling evangelist came through one time and he would dramatize the cross. And there was actually a cross and uh, they put me on a cross. I had a little pedestal to stand on and then they tied my, my hands on there because I wasn't going to let them put nails in it. And I want to tell you, you do that, you just hold out your hands sometime for any length of time. And what, what happened here and what we're told here is his joints literally went out of place because of the downward weight that was there. We're not told that in the New Testament. My heart is like wax, It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like pot shred and my tongue clings to my jaw. That we read in the New Testament. And you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. This was a derogatory term used by the Jews to the Gentiles. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me they pierced my hands and my feet. Well, the Romans were the one that brought about the cross and crucifixions. So this was written before the Roman Empire. The Psalms were written um, 3,000 around David's time, uh, B.C. He said, I can count all my bones. That tells me something about his physical feature, that he wasn't a heavy man, Um, that he was um, lean enough that you could see his rib cages and the bones that were there, and I can count all my bones. They look at me, and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's literally what happened. Um, And that takes us uh, through... um, some of the physical torment that the Lord endured. They pierced 
his hands when they nailed him to the cross. I thought, Lord, how can I dramatize this so there's more of an impact? So I'm gonna do something I've never done before. I'm gonna try to have you just think about Jesus being nailed to the cross. He would have been, the cross would have been laid down and they would have been uh, getting ready to drive the nails in. I want you to close your eyes and, and put that image in your head. Just close your eyes. Eyes closed? Keep them closed. Do I make my point? Much more graphically. That's what was happening. And that's what the Lord went through. It says, we, we, again, we just read something and we don't really wrap our head around the intensity of Jesus' nails. Not only there, but also on his feet. Um, it doesn't say that they had a foot rest um, for his feet. I had one, but um, I don't think he did. But... Um, just the physical suffering of the crucifixion uh, was meant to um, produce fear in people. When we visit Jerusalem, um, we go to the garden tomb, and right next to the garden tomb is um, Golgotha, and I believe it's an A spot. And the reason I say that is... He was, um, Abraham in the Old Testament was told to go to Mount Moriah and there to offer his son Isaac as an offering to the Lord. So when you, there's seven mountains in Jerusalem, uh, Mount Zion, uh, Mount Scopus, Mount of Olives, so on and so forth. Well, Mount Moriah, if you go to where the temple is, that's where they say um, Abraham offered Isaac at that spot. Thing is, it's 742 meters above sea level. It's only halfway up Mount Moriah, more, more than half. If you would go to the top of Mount Moriah, you would come to Calvary, which interestingly enough is 777 meters above sea level. And I think, well, that's an interesting number. And... Um, what the Muslims have done on the very, very top is they put a cemetery because they didn't want Christians or Jews going up there. And probably they, to make their point and to put fear in the hearts of people, they would do it right along the street. So my conviction is that Jesus was crucified at Golgotha at the top of the mountain, and it says nearby there was a garden. That garden is still there today. Somebody was telling me they were, last time they visited, they just created it and, and made it more beautiful than it was, was before. And uh, that's where Calvary is. We get our name Calvary Chapel because of what took place on Calvary. Um, turn with me to Isaiah chapter... 53. Isaiah 53. I want to go to 52 first of all. 
and read verse 14. Oh, we'll go back to 13. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. This is in reference to Jesus. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So this is during the kingdom age. But before that happens, we read, um, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the son's of men. I can't tell you <laughs> how much I struck, wrestle with this scripture because if the translation is correct, it's telling us that Jesus was beaten and disfigured more than any man. And um, some of the reasons for that, we read in the New Testament, we knew that Jesus had a beard. Well, Dwight, how do you know he had a beard? Because they pulled it out. Is what we're told. Uh, Tom was at men's prayer yesterday. I said, Tom, how do you think it would feel if I pulled out your beard? He didn't think much of the idea at all. <laughs> um, okay. What would happen? I mean, you'd be ripping off the skin with it. So when we read here, and then it says he was beaten with rods also. And now we read this before we get to Isaiah 53, 54. We have this verse that tells us just how marred and beaten the Lord was. My Bible says more than any other man. So let's go on to chapter 53, verses three through seven. Who has believed our report? Or whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. Jesus was an ordinary looking Jewish man. And when we saw him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. So more description about um, uh, what Jesus looked like. You know, he wasn't the Rock Hudson type character. All you young under 30 people have no idea what I just said, right? <laughs> He is despised, he is rejected by men. A man of sorrows, we don't think about that. We always think about Jesus walking around with a smile, (laughs) excuse me, on his face. No, and he was acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And um, I ask the question, why? Two times, Mary did not recognize him at the tomb, and the disciples knew it was the Lord, uh, but some weren't sure when he was in the Galilee. And my question is, why weren't they sure? Could it be because of the marring and the beating and, uh, and all the other things? Um, he could change his appearance, uh, but he was despised and we did not esteem him. So the first Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. Yes, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised, this would have been the rod beating, for our iniquities. Why was all this done? It was done for you. It was done for me. The things that we deserved to go through 
were all placed upon him. All right. Uh, this, this is going to be a hard one to wrap your head around, too. I was thinking about this, and I thought, if there's billions of galaxies, billions of stars in every one of these galaxies, and um, what is it, tw- 20 light years across, um, 20 million light years or whatever it is, that's some unbelievable number of planets and stars. And then he says in Genesis that he made them all on a certain day. And then this little one-liner, and he calls every one of them by name. Just let that sink in, the multitude of all, of all that. And then what really happened um, at the cross if he did it for us? You know that Jesus died for every man, woman, and, and child whoever came into this world, whether they accept him or not, that sin was placed upon him. You and I have the choice. We can accept it and ask for forgiveness or we can reject it and be held accountable for it. But for a moment, I could fill this room up pretty high with a, um, a list of sins. Um, I had a dream about you, Mike, last night. Yeah, yeah, there was this this huge chalkboard, and I mean it had to go 10 miles high. And the Lord uh, gave me a ladder, and he gave Mike a ladder, and he said, I want you to go and write all your sins. And the Lord gave me a great big piece of chalk, and he gave Mike this great big piece of chalk, and Mike is up, right, man, is he going at it. He's just writing down, so I'm trying to make my way up the ladder. And I, I finally get up, and Mike's going back down. I said, where are you going? And he says, get another piece of chalk. <laughs> I haven't told that one in a long time, Mike. What's your point? Jesus did not want to go to the cross. We'll get to that in just a little bit. He did not want to do it. Because if I know how many sins I commit, so does the Lord. Every single one of them, he knew and called it by name. Multiply that times eight billion people that live in the world today. Then multiply that times the time of Adam and Eve up to this time. And we're talking about the sins of the world. We say it sort of glibly. Oh, he died for the sins of the world. Do we have any idea? When he understood that psychologically, he said, the Bible says he sweat great drops of blood. And this, I've been told, I've, I'm not a doctor and I can't verify it, that you can reach a psychological breaking point where that actually happens where you actually can sweat blood. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I know it was true for Jesus because he realized what was about to happen. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. I'm in verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he 
opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so in these verses here, we'll read through verse uh, 14. He made his grave. Uh, he was taken from prison for judgment, and who declared his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And then he made his grave with the wicked, uh, but with the rich at his death. That was a first century tr- tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall, we, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall be prosper in his hand. Um, he shall see the travail of his soul on what he went through and be satisfied. This is the Father speaking. When he sees uh, that he has to turn away, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he understands the separation and the suffering that justified the Father in his eyes. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Notice it doesn't say all. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Those would be the two, one on the right, one on the left. And he bore the sins of many. Again, not all, because not all received him. And made intercession for their transgression, and he does it today. Um, I believe, I've quoted this before, on your best day you're gonna sin, according to Proverbs, seven times, either thought, word, or deed. On your best day. (laughs) And so, this has been accomplished. Now we read in 1 John 1, 9, that if we'll confess that sin and turn from that sin, that he's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins on a daily basis. We have one mediator. We can go straight to the, the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it. I lied to this person. I knew I was lying to it, and I did it anyway. And I was wrong. And um, please forgive me, and you'll be forgiven. That's what Hebrews is all about. I'm explaining that Jesus, um, in his one offering, is our new high priest who makes intercession for you and I. So he was bruised, he was scourged, and he did all this for you, and he did it for me. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd like to draw your attention to verses 27 to 34. Our text Paul read for us, do this in remembrance of me. Then remember who he's speaking to, the Corinthians. They're on this learning curve right now. And 27 through 34 we read, therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
What's he talking about? What does he mean in an unworthy manner? Well, remember, they never had communion before. So the Lord is explaining and teaching them for the first time um, that Jesus told us to remember him and all that he went through. They had no clue what Jesus went through, what the scripture said about the crucifixion. And so basically what he's referring to is verses 17 through 22. This is a, <laughs> the Corinthian church having, for, having communion and it probably was the first one and Paul's thinking we need to have a Bible study on communion. So let's pick it up, verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. This coming together is talking about communion. For First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Uh, for there much also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And getting back to the, the order that Paul's trying to establish here. But what was happening, therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? And the Corinthians are thinking, great, supper, with not understanding the meaning of it. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry, and another one gets drunk. Oh, that's great. Great big meal, a lot of wine. And so they're overeating and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Don't you realize that we're, when we come together to remember what Jesus told us, to remember him and what he did for us? You guys got this all wrong. And he's gonna set it in order. Um, do you not have uh, houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame and those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? I shall not praise you. Um, and then we have the, the famous verses that we, is our text, um, where he explains to them that this is his body that was broken for them. Now, we left off in verse 27. They were doing it in an unworthy manner. Um, let a man examine himself, so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. Corinthian church, listen up. This, this isn't a, a party festival that we're going to here, where you get drunk and you overeat. That's not what this is about. Um, for he who eats and drinks is in, in an unworthy manner, and it was definitely unworthy, drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, is this right that I should come and have the Lord's Supper and get drunk? That's uh, probably not. But remember, this is the first time they're hearing this. We would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that, he may not, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. Stand in line. Show courtesy. Um, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And I like this last verse, 
and the rest I will set in order when I come. Now the implication here is everything is out of order. If you go to chapter 14, and we'll be there in a couple weeks as we talk about the gifts and how the gifts should operate. If you look at the last verse, verse 40, it says this. Let all things be done decently and what? In order, an ordered structure. It's not a free fall. It's not a party. Judge what you're doing. And uh, he's writing, he had to write a, a special chapter just about taking communion because he didn't have a clue. And then the last verse we read in verse 34, he says, I'll set the rest of it in order when I, uh, when I get there. So um, Jesus said in verse 24, let's read it again because it's the title of the study this morning, Take, Eat, This Is My Body. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, this morning, the question is, remember what? Well, remember what Jesus really went through. Um, Matthew 26, go back to that. And I want to explain that Jesus did not want to go to Calvary. We read it in Matthew 26, picking it up in verse 36. They're at Gethsemane. It says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to himself, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch for me. I don't think we have any idea what he's thinking. He's thinking of all the sins of all the people and all the world and what they and you feel like when you sin and you know you blow it. Everybody knows that feeling. Multiply at times. That's what he's thinking about. Exceedingly sorrowful. He realizes what's gonna happen next. The sins of all people for all time are gonna be placed upon him. And he's gonna be consciously aware because he's God and God can do all things. And I think that's what's being said here. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What is he saying? I don't wanna do this. And it, but then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If you can find any other way to reconcile man's sin, any other way at all, then I want that. There is no other way, my friends. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. He's the only one who can do it. And he doesn't want to. He realizes the implications of it. And now he needs his friends to pray for him. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, they nodded off. What, could you not watch with me for one hour? Guys, I could use a little prayer right now. 
Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm sure Peter, James, and John went up there. I don't think they really understood what was taking place. And um, got late, they got tired and went to sleep. But they were, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. So we went again a second time and prayed, saying, oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, see, he still doesn't want it. Unless I drink it, then your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, and their eyes were heavy. And so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. In other words, I don't want to do this. Any other way? Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. In John chapter two, in his first miracle, um, Mary asked him to um, turn uh, to uh, do the miracle because they ran out of wine. Jewish wedding lasted seven, seven days. So they ran out and the Lord said to Mary, my hour has not yet come. He says it seven times in the Gospel of John. My hour has not yet come. What does he say here? He said, behold, the hour is at hand. The reason Jesus was born. John the Baptist saw him, he says, there he is. There's the Lamb of God. And he's gonna take away the sins of the world. That was John's message. And he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men, into the hands of sinners. Then he says, rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. And you know the rest, Judas showing up and betraying the Lord. Okay, what should we do and what should be our response to um, a graphic in-depth study of the crucifixion of what Jesus really went through. What should our response be in light of it? I'm gonna close this morning in the book of Revelation. Um, First of all, go to chapter two, Revelation two. And we have what I believe our response should be. And the only thing that he ask in return is this attitude of gratitude that we really have a remembrance of what he went through. So in the first five verses to the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Ephesus, right? These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, can't bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles that are not and you found them liars you have persevered and you have patience you have labored for my name's sake and you even have have not become weary nevertheless I have this against you in that you have left your first love they had gotten into the social gospel Um, doing Christian deeds, but leaving out their first love relationship with the Lord. You and I are called the bride of Christ. Now, a husband 
loves his wife and a wife loves her husband. The context of the cross is all about getting Jesus his bride, the church. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you've left your first love. And they left it because they got caught up in the social gospel. What does the next word say in five? Remember. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the first work or else. Now, these are strong words. I want you to remember. What was it like when you first met Jesus? Slate was clean. I don't have that weight on my back anymore. My soul is satisfied. All because of what you, Lord, have done for me. And we have this freedom. When Jesus said, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, you're free. I'm a product of the 60s and that was what it was supposed to be all about, being, being free. We weren't free. We weren't free until many of us came to know the Lord. Repent or I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Go to chapter three and let's look at the church of Sardis. And we read here, um, verses one through three. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. I refer to this church as dead Protestantism. In other words, they go to church, they go through the, through the routine, they would consider themselves Christians, but they're dead. They're not born again. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. What does verse three say? Remember. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief, and will not, you will not know what hour I will come to you. When you're in a born-again church, they teach the whole Bible, and it tells us the whole story. And one of the things that we're told often here to do is to watch. Watch for what? Signs for the coming of the Lord. The biggest one is the nation of Israel. The generation that sees Israel become a nation again will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. And my friends, this global pandemic that's going on right now, it's um, um, the thunder before the storm. It's just all being set up so that when the Lord takes the church out, which could be before we're out of this Bible study, it's that late right now. And so if the Lord tells us to watch, the question is, is to watch for what? Well, make sure that you're ready for the Lord when he comes. Be, be one of the five wise virgins who kept their candle lit, implying what? Well, they were watching. They were waiting for what? For the blessed return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's referring to here. But I like this because he, we have here remember, repent, and return in that order. Remember what I did for you. Well, this morning's message 
if, and I'll close with this scripture, is remember in hopefully more, a much more graphic way what Jesus really went through. And when he says remember, we just don't read it and get so used to it, we go, yeah, well, we read that every first Sunday of the month. And I'm glad that we had to go through, we get to go verse by verse through chapter 11 and get to the place of remembering what it's all about. And that is keeping ourselves in a place and remembering what it was like when he first got saved. Yeah, we do good works, we're supposed to, but that's secondary, not primary. Primary is the first and the greatest commandment, which is what? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. Everything else is secondary. And if, if it helps at all to have this, what I like to call attitude of gratitude, think of what he's done for you and what he's taken off your shoulders and put it on his shoulders. And there's a verse for that, and this will be the last one. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 22, one of my favorite verses. For he, that would be the father, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin. He took your sin. But better yet, he gave me his righteousness. The great exchange. And so hopefully the next time we have communion we'll have a maybe a little deeper um, respect for what the Lord has done for us and the only other thing I'd ask you to do is um, just uh, love on Mike a little bit on his way out he's got this uh, guilt complex that's really on him right now so just pray for him too uh, he's pointing I'll get you later let's stand and we'll pray Lord I thank you for man's prayer And this was not a smooth Bible study. And it wasn't meant to be. We don't want to hear from the pulpit only good things and smooth things. And how wonderful everything is going to be because we've given our life to you. But Lord, um, just help us realize really what you went through. You told us to remember the breaking of the bread of your body and a spear in the side where you spilt your blood. And you did it all because of love, not because you wanted to. But as it says in Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise you so that you could have us as your bride. So let us develop and remember and return to our first love. If we have to repent of anything that's in first place besides you, then Lord, we repent of it right now. And we heed your words and just coming back and remembering um, that you want us as your bride. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen.